Welcome to the Catholic Habit Podcast. I'm Josh Madden. Today we're starting the first in a series of shows dedicated to G.K. Chesterton's well-known work, Orthodoxy. Lent is upon us, but before we dive in, this podcast is presented to you by Theology and Reality, the website we run on the Substack platform that includes this podcast and a whole host of other Catholic content. So if you're interested, go check that out at theologyandreality.substack.com. You can sign up to get emails, posts, and podcast episodes delivered right to your inbox. You can sign up with a free subscription, though there are paid subscription options if you're interested in the whole plethora of things that get posted there, or if you just want to be able to support this work. Now, thanks so much for being here. Let's go. So here in our first episode, what we want to do is first just talk about G.K. Chesterton as a person, as a man first for a little bit, give a little background on himself, his own life, his own work, kind of a brief overview, and then dive into the first chapter after that. So Gilbert Keith Chesterton colloquially known as G.K. Chesterton, of course, is one of the most famous authors of the 20th century. He was born in Kensington, England in 1874. He was baptized into the Anglican Church as an infant. His family were rather nominal Christian observers. In his youth, Chesterton dabbled in the occult and considered himself to be an agnostic, though his wife would later push him back towards regular Christian observance. And in 1922, at the age of 48, he would then enter the Roman Catholic Church as a devout believer. Although Chesterton married Francis Blogg in 1901, the couple were never able to have children. Out of university, Chesterton began work at a publishing house and several years later became a full-time journalist as an essayist and critic of the arts. Though he would be employed as a journalist for the rest of his life, he's most well known for his prolific work as a writer of novels and essays, of course. Authoring scores of books, his most famous works include Heretics, Orthodoxy, The Man Who Was Thursday, and The Everlasting Man. In addition to those and others, his series of short stories centering around the character of Father Brown, a Catholic priest who solves mysteries, is one of the more popular mystery series of the 20th century. The work of Orthodoxy is a follow-up to his well-received work Heretics, in which he lays out the philosophical view which led him to embrace the truth claims of the Catholic Church as those which best explain the whole of reality. Other major figures of the 20th century wrote works along similar lines. Take Ronald Knox or John Henry Newman and C.S. Lewis, for example, foremost among Chesterton's English peers. Though Chesterton's work is the most widely read after the works of Lewis, I would say. Writing in a loquacious, down-to-earth style, Chesterton is known for his employment of paradox, as well as his use of images, metaphors, sharp turns of phrase, and witty criticisms. Now, even while alive, Chesterton was a man that divided opinion. Many people appreciated his particular style of writing, in addition to the uplifting and intellectually stimulating content of his work. Though dying before the major onslaught of the Second World War, Chesterton was a vocal critic of war, violence, anti-Semitism, and the eugenics movement. As for his political views, Chesterton was one among a vocal minority who advocated for a social political structure dubbed distributism, in which private property and the free market were retained and respected, and yet the vast majority of physical goods and property would be as widely distributed as possible. 
for a good number of early 20th century Catholic thinkers, like Chesterton, Belloc, Vincent McNabb, for instance, this was a desirable middle way between unfettered capitalism and the socialist and communist regimes that they feared would destroy Europe. A physically imposing man, Chesterton was very tall and yet struggles with his weight and the health complications associated with it would eventually lead to his succumbing to congestive heart failure in his 60s. He died, survived by his wife in 1936 at his home in Buckinghamshire. The Requiem funeral mass was celebrated by the famous Ronald Knox, a renowned English convert to Catholicism. Now, it would take him 21 years, interestingly enough, from the time of his reversion to mere Christianity before eventually becoming a Catholic. So Chesterton only lived as a Catholic for the last 14 years of his life, which is interesting. Most people assume and just think about Chesterton as a Catholic in comparison to Lewis, for instance, who was just an Anglican. And so they compare the two and think, well, Lewis is the Anglican, Chesterton's the Catholic. But in fact, Chesterton lived most of his life, in fact, as a non-Catholic. And many of his most beloved works come before his conversion. Uh, Heretics, uh, Orthodoxy, for instance, the work we are discussing now, uh, most of the, I think, most, if not all, of the Father Brown stories, the Ballad of the White Horse, so many things that people know and love Chesterton for actually come before his entrance into the Catholic Church. Some works, however, come afterwards. So his biographies on Francis of Assisi and St. Thomas Aquinas, for instance, The Everlasting Man, all of those come after his conversion. Uh, now, many compare Chesterton to Lewis, just in their own minds, right? In their imagination. These two are a bit of a pair in kind of early 20th century English Christian writing. So Chesterton was a contemporary of Lewis who lived just a little bit after. So Lewis is born at the very tail end of the 19th century and dies in 1963. But if you compare the two, right, there's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of differences. So Chesterton is the journalist um, compared to Lewis's uh, academic stylings. Uh, They both have similar journeys, however, from skepticism and agnosticism over to Christianity, but they have very different authorial styles. So their writing reads very differently. Chesterton tends to be more a stream of consciousness, right? He's more dependent on metaphors, paradox, rhetorical flourishes, for instance. Lewis, on the other hand, is more clear, I think, more methodical. He's far more straightforward in his style of prose. He's equally insightful and prescient about what he thought was wrong with the world, however, and what ills were likely to befall society. Now, personally, I much prefer Lewis as a writer, which is interesting since we're starting with Chesterton here. But both are, I think, acquired tastes from Chesterton and that he has kind of a rambling flair for the dramatic Lewis and that he has a deceptive simplicity. A lot of people start off their Christian journey, I think, reading Lewis. And then as they advance, maybe they maybe they move off of Lewis into other things that they think are more sophisticated. But Lewis, I think, I think his... Uh, I think he's deceptively simple, right? There's a lot more under the surface to Lewis, I think, if you spend the time with him. But in any case, we're here to talk about Chesterton and one of his most important and insightful works, Orthodoxy. So in the preface to this book, in fact, I think there's a quotation that's a a good entrance into the book. It's a good way of summarizing the book. So here's what Chesterton states. It is the purpose of the writer, he writes, to attempt an explanation not of whether the Christian faith can be believed, 
but of how he personally has come to believe it. The book is therefore arranged upon the positive principle of a riddle and its answer. It deals first with all the writer's own solitary and sincere speculations, and then with all the startling style in which they were suddenly satisfied by the Christian theology. So he writes this book in 1908, long before his conversion to Catholicism. So it's not a book about the Catholic faith, at least explicitly. However, it's quite easy to see the seeds planted here that will eventually sprout into full bloom when he comes into communion with Rome. Not a big jump at the time there in the early years of the 20th century from high church Anglicanism to Catholicism. It's a little different uh, today in the 21st century. Now, if you look through the table of contents, for instance, um, you'll see chapter titles like The Suicide of Thought, The Ethics of Elfland, The Romance of Orthodoxy. You'll begin to see that Chesterton has a gift for turning a phrase in such a way that you'll likely remember it for the rest of your life, uh, for a very long time, at least. So if we open the pages to chapter one, as we may have mentioned, the book is a response to various criticisms he had received in the past, especially regarding his book Heretics, published just a few years before. Essentially, that critique is that heretics had been too negative, too cutting, and had failed to offer a positive philosophy that should take the place of the philosophies that Chesterton was so critical of. This is the goal of orthodoxy, this text here, to provide that positive philosophy. Beginning with the illustration of the man in the yacht setting sail for distant lands only to wind up right back where he started, Chesterton launches us right into our first big category of the episode, the critical idea. So the critical idea of the first chapter is this. He states the following in, in the first page or two. I wish to set forth my faith as particularly answering this double spiritual need, the need for that mixture of the familiar and the unfamiliar, which Christendom has rightly named romance. As he sees it, human beings as such have a need to be excited by the world, to be enchanted by it, and at the very same time, to feel like the world is their home, a place of absolute comfort and stability. So it's, you know, it's, it's no surprise that he talks about a double spiritual need here, since these are radically different desires and needs. Yet, as he goes on to say, he's writing for the ordinary man and woman, and this is absolutely one of those ordinary experiences and longings, I think. And wanderlust, the craving of adventure is just as common as are the feelings of homesickness and nostalgia. There's actually, and he doesn't mention this in the book, but I think that it's fair to mention, there are two words that really get to the heart of not just what Chesterton is doing here, but what many other authors, Lewis especially, we were talking about Lewis just a few minutes ago, what they want to describe in their writing about the human longing for something else, and yet the human longing at the same time for something comfortable, for something familiar. The first is a term called sensukt, which translates to a sense of yearning, a sense of incompleteness, and that there's something out there somewhere that will make you whole, but that you don't quite have yet. A sense that perhaps things were better at some point in the past, perhaps, or that things might be better elsewhere and that we wish we could be a part of, right? this idea of desire or yearning for something out there. 
The other is, I think, a more, I'm not sure if it's more familiar than, than Sensukt, but the other term is uh, Fernway, which translates to a kind of far sickness. So it's not quite homesickness. It's something else because homesickness is, you know, you're, you're sick for the familiar and for the comfortable. Fernway is a kind of desire, a kind of sickness for something that you haven't experienced, right? The ache and desire for experiences that we've never had, wanting to find a sense of belonging somewhere that you feel you should be and yet never have been. So this idea that uh, it's, it's, almost, it's almost a species of nostalgia, I think, right? But not nostalgia for, oh, you know, I wish I could go back you know, to this particular period in my life. But it's a kind of nostalgia for something that you may imagine or something that you have read about or some place that you want to be. And I think that that's a fairly common feeling in today's world, especially in with a lot of people struggling with anxiety or difficulties in their own life, this desire for something better out there, even if we haven't experienced it ourselves. So for me, that's, that seems to be very obviously the, the critical idea, not just of this chapter, but of the book as a whole. Now, the best image and metaphor in this particular chapter is obviously the man in the boat. It's a, it's a fascinating metaphor for this idea he's trying to evoke here with the tension between our own desires for the known and the unknown. Now, talking about this man in the boat, right, it's for, for those who haven't read it, this, this, you know, he, he talks about, um, he gives this, this illustration of a man who sets out in a boat for far off lands wanting to discover something new, and at the end of his journey, landing back on the shores of his own country and being happy about it, right? Because it's something he's familiar with and something that he loves. And so you have that kind of twin fulfillment there of setting out on an adventure and at the end, just simply coming home. Now, this probably works best for those who really love their home or their homeland. Um, it might not work so might not work so well for those who aren't very content with where they are. Um, but it's also really powerful, I think, if one doesn't love their homeland or their home, for instance, if you feel not very at home in the world. The illustration serves to remind us that we are, in fact, supposed to love the world. We are supposed to love our home, even if that doesn't happen to be our particular circumstance. And so it's an image for this world and not the next. In the next world, we will be filled with the knowledge that we are finally at rest in our true home. For now, however, these twin desires are appropriate to keep us both striving for what lies beyond us and content, hopefully, with the lot that has fallen to us in life and the blessings we've received. So um, Chesterton, he, he includes a quotation here uh, after this illustration. He says, we need to be happy in this wonderland without once being merely comfortable. I think that's a good way of summarizing that. Now, the best quote of the chapter. Now there's, I'm going to, I'm going to give two here. The, the first is the best quote, the thing that I think is most profound. The second is the most Chesterton quote. Um, if you're familiar with Chesterton at all, um, he has just a, a particular style with it. I, I think it will make sense in a moment. So okay, first, best quote. Here's what he says. The thing I propose to take as common ground between myself and any average reader 
is this desirability of an active and imaginative life, picturesque and full of a poetical curiosity, a life such as Western man at any rate always seemed to have desired. If a man says that extinction is better than existence, or blank existence better than variety and adventure, then he is not one of the ordinary people to whom I am talking. If a man prefers nothing, I can give him nothing. But nearly all people I have ever met in this Western society in which I live would agree to the general proposition that we need this life of practical romance. And so the reason I think this is the best quote is because I think that it's most applicable to not just revealing something about the way things are, but I think it also reveals something about the way things are now, particularly in the 21st century, because I don't think you'd be able to say the same thing here over 100 years later if he was writing this today, because he says, right, I'm talking to the average person who, of course, would agree that extinction is not better than being alive, right? So he says the average person would obviously agree it's better to be alive than to not be alive. It is better to live a life of adventure and variety than to live a blank life. And so I, I'm not quite sure he'd be able to say the same thing about the average person today. I think that's part of our modern malaise. Right? You have all kinds of people who think it would be better if human beings went extinct for the sake of the planet, right? Um, there's a real sense of the loss of human dignity today in which we simply value human life because it's there. Uh, this is something that Chesterton himself thinks and assumes, and he assumes that the average person, pretty much everybody everywhere out there, would also agree. Uh, but I think reading through this, and I think we can read this and agree that it is not quite the case anymore. And so that's an interesting disintegration, I think, of the human condition since Chesterton wrote this. Um, how long ago was this? So if he publishes this in 1908, it's 2024. That's, you know, close to 120 years ago, right? So over a century. In any case, I'd, yeah, I'd be interested in in hearing what, what anyone else had to think about that. That's my take on it. So the most Chesterton quote, however, is this. He says, it's close to the end of the chapter. I did try to found a heresy of my own, he says. And when I had put the last touches to it, I discovered that it was orthodoxy. Right. So I think uh, that's just, I mean, that, that's a great line, I think. And it really kind of ties not just the two books together, heretics and orthodoxy, but really, I think in a sentence, pins down what he's trying to do here. Because essentially what he's saying is, I had tried on my own, apart from Christianity, to approach the world in as true and real a way as I could. I put together everything that I thought was genuine, everything I thought that was true. Right? I tried to do it myself, right? which is kind of the definition of heresy in a way, right? Coming up with something on your own, apart from the prevailing orthodoxy, as it were. And so he says, I tried to found a heresy of my own. And when I had finished, I discovered that it was simply orthodoxy. So everything that he fig tried to figure out on his own, he have ended he ended up thinking, um, he ended up discovering that this is nothing new, right? Everything that he had thought was already present there in much more abundance in Christianity, and so it was his own heresy, right? His his own search for a heretical view apart from what prevailed that actually led him to orthodoxy. It's so. 
in essence, that's really what the entire book is attempting to illustrate for us, right? Again, this is not a kind of logical treatise. This isn't a work of um, logic in this in in that sense. It's a work of personal experience. Right? He's going to show us over the course of these eight or nine chapters how he actually came to see the truth. So, a question that this chapter raises is my next category. And here's my question. And honestly, this the, the final two categories that I want to try and go through every week is, is a question that the chapter raises and then what to meditate on that particular week for Lent because we're, we're doing this during Lent. So I think that that's helpful. Uh, this week, however, uh, I think there are these two different questions kind of pair up with one another. So they're honestly both pretty good for, for either thing. Okay, so a question this chapter raises is this. Are we too comfortable sometimes with the way that our lives currently are? So many of us are, are parents with children. It's, that's my situation, right? I, I assume that's most people's situation just because statistically that's, that's what most people end up doing. Uh, others are students or priests and religious, perhaps, right? People who have discovered, at least for the time being, if not permanently, their vocation. We're all seeking comfort, Human beings are designed for happiness, in fact, right? The Christian tradition is very firm about this, right? Human beings were created to be happy. Now, obviously, uh, we run into a lot of problems when you look for happiness in the wrong places, but the fact remains, we were designed to be happy. But we need to ensure that we have not tricked ourselves, I think, into complacency because it's easy. The Christian life is a radical one. Now, we're not all called to follow the examples of some of the most extreme or idiosyncratic of the saints, right? So think of, for instance, um, St. Francis, right? We're not all called to follow the example of St. Francis and strip naked in the town square to renounce everything or uh, to follow St. Ignatius of Antioch, who once wrote a strongly worded letter telling his fellow Christians that they should absolutely not interfere with his impending martyrdom and that he, in fact, desired to be ground down between the teeth of the lions. Right? So we may not all be called to follow those two examples. However, there are many ways, even little ways, that we can radicalize our own Christian faith, if you want to use that term. There's many ways we could do this. For instance, um, waking up very early to say prayers, for instance. Finding the extra time during the week to make it to Mass even one more time. Maybe we can't go every day, but is there a time you could go even one more time? Uh, returning to more ancient and traditional regulations regarding fasting and abstinence, uh, putting in time at the local homeless shelter, praying in front of an abortion clinic, even something like allowing yourself to be open to having more children when you've been on the fence about it. All of these are radical ways of living out the gospel. And finally, I'm going to kind of follow up, right? So a question to raise and then what to meditate on this week and how it relates to this Lenten season. So here it is. How could we find ways to awaken one of these two desires in our lives that Chesterton has been discussing? So some people feel very at home. They don't feel yearning for something beyond themselves. Others feel this longing constantly, never really feeling at home in the world. Now, the first group, the first group, I think, would need to contemplate what it would mean 
to re-enchant your life. You live in a world that was literally brought out of nothing into existence by divine love. You have a guardian angel. If you're a practicing Catholic, you have access to supernatural helps in the sacraments, and prayer really does work. So what would it mean to re-enchant our lives, seek out and kindle this desire for the transcendent once again? So that's the first group. Now, the second group, others that have no problem feeling that longing, perhaps they would need to contemplate what it would mean to try and grow where you're planted. Divine providence has set you precisely where you now find yourself. So ask yourself why that is, what you could be there to do or to learn and pray for the grace to feel content with what you've been given, or at least for the grace to endure the difficult circumstance you may find yourself in. So this Lent, we would do well, I think, to meditate on these themes of peace and desire, of love and of hope, and use them to hold fast to that supernatural hope which is guiding us to our heavenly homeland. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts to help spread this channel far and wide. If you've benefited from this podcast or anything else we do over at Theology and Reality, consider donating to keep this venture going and to help us keep finding new ways to evangelize, teach, and spread the joy of Christianity, the true philosophy. Join us again next week for the next episode in our series, and God bless you.